This is where I'd like to start then. Pulling together some of the the the, um, the some of the topics that people presented when we first came together, and our experiences of the morning, and just what I'm doing in my mind is I'm shuffling around the order that I was going to say things because they come out in a different order. The blessing that I made just when I rang the bell about. Um, May people be sustained in whatever it is that they're going through. And may we be sustained by our trust in human basic goodness and human compassion. I realized as I said that, that that particular point is for me so sustaining and uplifting that uh, sense that human beings are fundamentally compassionate people. Uh, I loved it, by the way, that someone's cell phone rang before the end of the sitting. You don't have to say who it was. It doesn't matter. I like it when someone's cell phone rings in the middle of a sitting because I'm pretty sure that the same thing happens in mostly everybody's mind. First of all, everybody hears the cell phone ringing. And if it has a moment of, uh-oh, what is that? Uh-oh, it's a cell phone. Uh-oh, is it mine? That's the next one. Right? And that you say, uh-oh, is it mine? Could have been mine, actually, but is it mine? Then the next one, okay, good, it's not mine. For everybody, for everybody that it isn't theirs, right? Good, it's not mine. And then, did you not have the thought, I hope that person who's scrambling to get their phone right now, his or her phone, doesn't feel bad about it? Didn't you have that thought? You know, it's really all right. It's not that big of a deal, you know. So cell phone rings. It's not a calamity, the cell phone rings. You did have that thought, didn't you, Brian? That, who had that thought? Well, you, you could claim it now even if you didn't have it it's, because it's a good thought to have because I think that we think that because that's what we'd like for people to think to, about us if it happened to us. And the truth is because that's also a moment of wisdom. It isn't a big deal. So the cell phone rings, you know. Yeah, Brian. I also thought it was a good sort of like practice in the sense of trying not to get distracted from that and get back to the breath. <laughs> That's exactly right. I have friends who did much of their meditation practice in India, in Bodh Gaya. I am, uh, I am the first generation. I'm part of the first generation of people who uh, have the experience of having been taught by Asian teachers who are lineage holders but they were here or they were in Hawaii. I actually never did long extended practice in India or in Thailand. My friends who practiced in Bodh Gaya said that the, the, the practice center in Bodh Gaya was on a crossroads of two major highways. Ruth was there, she knows. Said all day long, trucks are rumbling by, trucks and cars without mufflers, not to speak of everything else going by on an Indian street, which is you know, a lot of traffic and a lot of animals and a lot of people. And that was, a, that was the practice situation for them. So we sit here and uh, sometimes, uh, this is not to say bad on anybody, it just talks about the the, 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 the the tricks that the mind plays on people. You begin to sit and you become 
to a little bit more vulnerable to your own inner process, sometimes there's a, some, some moments of shakiness because your whole past presents itself to you. There's nothing that doesn't come up for review if you sit long enough. And people get sometimes a little bit testy so that people will write a note to the teachers or to the managers. They say, please tell people not to bang the door so loud. Once in a blue moon, someone comes in and, and lets the door bang. It's not that big of a deal, you know. And the whole rest of the time, it's quiet. One of the initial research projects in the 1960s, I think it's 68, something like that, one of the initial research projects in uh, meditation um, psychology was to uh, wire up meditators to uh, EEG machines and other kinds of machines that test brainwaves and have meditators do different kinds of meditations. And the people who were doing concentration meditations, just concentration, had a different response in, they, they were, they were oh, this sentence is not going well. Uh, there were two types of people. There were two types of people that they, two, two research kinds of subjects. They had the people who practiced concentration meditation. Concentration was the first of the factors that we practiced. One object, stay with it, don't move off it. Stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. It's great, concentration meditation. It's not to say anything not negative about it. You get all kinds of blissful states from it. It really, I think, calms down the whole nervous system. It certainly calms down your physical system. It's, it's good for your blood pressure. It's a, very good for you, concentration <coughs> meditation. Mindfulness is not concentration meditation. Mindfulness is concentration meditation with a certain amount of awareness and alertness built into it. It's built on a, on a foundation of concentration so that if you come on a 10-day retreat, the first three days, I used to be very paradoxical. I thought I'd come on my first retreat. This is a long, long time ago, and I began to practice. I'd come on retreat, and my teachers would say, mindfulness is a practice of paying attention to whatever comes up in one's experience moment to moment impartially with a balanced mind. And now we'll start. Bring your attention completely to your breath and leave it just there. I said, well, wait a minute. You know, I didn't say this out loud, of course. But in my mind, I thought, wait a minute. You just said paying attention impartially to whatever comes up, thoughts, feelings, impressions, emotions, body sensations. And all of a sudden, breath, go back to the breath, stay with the breath, hold on to the breath. I said, wait a minute. Speaking out of two sides of your mouth, but I didn't say anything. I thought that. I came to understand after a while. It's my fault. I didn't understand well. I'm sure they explained it well. I just didn't get it well. Uh, after a while, I came to understand that what you do in the beginning is you build up a certain level of composure so that you can, with clarity and alertness, say, now this is happening, now that's happening, now this is happening, now that's happening. The formula for uh, uh, mindfulness is it's a combination of concentration and alertness uh, meditations. You know, there are a number of uh, renowned meditation traditions. Gurdjieff was one. Uh, Krishnamurti was another. Uh, there are some Tibetan teachers who teach this way as well, who say, no need to meditate. Just pay attention. Wake up. You can wake up in this moment. I really admire them. I don't mean to in any way minimize them. 
I admire the people who, uh, when you read the uh, certainly the early Buddhist scriptures, they there are all kinds of descriptions of the Buddha coming to a certain place and expounding his understanding. And then at the end, it would say, "And when the Blessed One was finished teaching, in behind the eyes of five hundred people, six hundred people, a hundred people." In the eyes of all those people this arose the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. That means all those people, they heard what he said, and in that moment, they gave up spontaneously all greed, all aversion, all personal need, so that they could connect in the fullest way with all beings. So I love those stories. I think they're great about the, the, all those people who spontaneously woke up just from hearing what the Buddha said, never mind meditating. As a matter of fact, it's one of my um, kind of... Uh, I made this up. No one ever said this, but it's one of my thoughts that the Buddha who taught that way, because he mostly didn't give meditation instructions, went from place to place, and he told stories, very much parables in the style of Jesus tell the story of this and the story of that, to convey the, the truth of his teaching that clinging was the cause of suffering, the core of his teaching. And uh, I have a feeling, I made this up, that although the Buddha went around and told stories and lots of people spontaneously were uh, woke up and all their uh, habits of clinging of needing things to be their way when they can't be their way, which causes suffering, they gave it up. It just fell away. I think to myself, maybe at some point he said, hmm, a lot of people are getting this, what I'm saying. A lot of people aren't getting this. What should I do for those people who aren't getting it? It's like when you teach uh, reading to first graders, and a lot of them get it, and then a lot of them don't get it. And then you say, okay, these people have to come early in the morning and be in the bluebirds or something and have the extra special teaching in the morning. You always give it a good name so people don't feel bad. So they don't know for five minutes. So they don't feel bad, but you know, everybody knows they feel bad, right? They do feel bad. But they need special teachings. I have the feeling that the Buddha did that. He said, people are not getting it. So for them, I'll break it down. For them, instead of saying, just pay attention, to the arising and passing away of suffering in the mind and what causes it. <coughs> Sit down, take breaths, calm your body down, now pay attention. Pay attention to your breath, pay attention to your body, pay attention to the contents of your mind or the climate of your mind. Thank you very much. Pay attention to the climate of your mind by which I, 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 which I understand as Pay attention. If you could describe your mind as you sit. Uh, I almost said this this morning when I was giving you the instructions, but I thought I'd let you think about it afterwards. It says the, the meditator knows the presence or absence. My mind is filled with goodwill or my mind is, doesn't have goodwill. My mind is filled with anger. Or the, my mind has no anger in it. My mind is filled with thoughts. My mind is empty of thoughts. And it's all presented in, 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 the, in the sermon. It's presented like they're all okay. Those are just things that the mind is. Sometimes this way, sometimes that way. Sometimes this way, sometimes that way. And the way in which it's presented leads me to feel 
that you don't get demerits if you said, you know, my mind is full of thoughts and, as a matter of fact, they're angry thoughts. The point is not to have only a mind that uh, has, is filled with peace and goodwill. But it would be wonderful if we did, but it's filled with this and that and that and that, and to know it and then to be able to respond to it with wisdom. Be able to say, this I'll cultivate, this I'll now put out of my mind. So I think about that, uh, that, that idea. I made it up completely that, uh, that the Mindfulness Sutta is, the, the, the Sermon on the Foundations of Mindfulness is the Buddha's response to people not getting it all of a sudden. But it, it, it might be, or it could have been, because it serves that way for people who don't get it just like this. You say, okay, pay attention carefully and slowly we'll break up your experience into parts. How about feeling the, your attention in your body? If, you felt my, if I felt my attention in my body, if I just kept my body as my focus of attention for the whole time that I sat, well, you did too today in the breath and the body. There'd be times when it felt really wonderful, right? Comfortable. If I were reporting on my mind state, I'd say mindful of delight, mindful of comfort, mindful of balance. And then all of a sudden, maybe my back starts to hurt. Anybody had something come up? What happened all of a sudden? All of a sudden? All of a sudden, you have an itch. Isn't that, it's an amazing thing most people say about an itch, you know? Like here? that you feel I really have to scratch that. Actually, I have to take a little time out to read you a particular poem about an itch. If I, if, no, no, I, I just read this this morning. This is, uh, this is my friend Jack's new book about to be out called The Buddha is Still Teaching. And I'm eager to read this particular... These are pieces of... Various contemporary, um, various contemporary teachers, and one of them is my friend Tamara Engel, who died a couple of years ago, who uh, was one of the founders of New York Insight. Oh, I have to read you this before I tell you about why the itch comes up. You know, that, that itch... Remember I said you might feel tingling in your palms? How many people felt tingling? That's a little bit. How many people felt tingling in their face? How many people felt some other kind of body sensation? What did you feel? Heat, Phyllis. What else? Heat. Tingling in the feet. What else? Hmm? Leg went numb. Uh, what else? Uh? I didn't hear anyone say tingling. Tingling, tingling in the feet. Uh, tingling in the feet, tingling in the hands a little bit. Here is Tamara called... Tamara wrote this poem on retreat when she was dying. Um, My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was training for kindness. 
a training for the muscle for bearing witness for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. It's not about, uh, thank you for actually bringing that up because I meant to read that and I didn't know when I would. Uh, Tamara has been gone two and a half years now um, because our grandbaby is two years old. Um, uh, the itch is another form of tingling, and for some reason or other, as people say, I start to meditate and I start to itch. As I start to meditate and my body presents itself to me, it was doing that all the time, that tingling or whatever, but all of a sudden the mind wakes up a little bit and it says, oh, uh, I have to scratch this, I have to scratch that. And when people say, well, why shouldn't I scratch? Why shouldn't I just do that? Itches, I'll scratch. Or my shoulders are tight, why not just do that and relax the shoulders. And uh, after all, this is not a, a, a meditation supposed to make you suffer. I mean, this is the end of suffering. <laughs> no, but I, Tamara has it in her poem. For every itch I didn't scratch, that muscle in the mind that says, you can do this, gets to exercise. For every itch I didn't scratch, every pain I didn't respond to, that muscle in the mind that says, everybody's got this stuff. I'm not the only person who's got it. Everybody's dealing with something that they have to abide. I am part of the whole world of people with stuff. And I can abide. I, I really like that word, abide. I can be with it. I can teach this a lesson. And she says it so eloquently. Here as I face my death, I needed that muscle to be able to do that. You know, the very last time I called her, because this is the point I want to come back to, and this is the, if I make one point in this whole morning, this is the point. And the very last time I called her, uh, Tamara was living in Florida when she died, and for the last couple of weeks of her life, she uh, elected to move into a hospice because it was too hard for her partner to be taking care of her at home. So. It was easier medically for her to be in the hospice and to have the morphine and to have the kind of care that she needed. And, um, but I'd phone her there and she'd answer the phone and we'd talk. And uh, when it was really quite near the end, I phoned and her phone didn't answer. And finally the, uh, uh, the nursing station picked up the phone as they do if you don't answer the phone in your room. And I asked about her and they said, um, She's really too weak to pick up the phone at this point. And I said, can you go in and give her the phone or put it next to her? And they said, okay, they go in. And I, you know, they, here they are. She'd give her the phone, I'm talking to her. And I remember the conversation. I remember only a little piece of the conversation. She said, this is very hard. And I said, I know, but you know, I, not too long, sweetheart, it's gonna be all right. And she said, but you know, it's really very hard. And then she said, oh, wait a minute. I have to move a little bit because the nurses are rearranging my blankets right now. She said, you know, the nurses here are marvelous. They have been so kind. They're so really wonderful. I am so grateful to the nurses who are here. And that's really the last thing she said to me in this lifetime. And I thought to myself, if you go out of this world grateful, 
then you go out with a good mind. That she preserved that ability to not be absorbed in her own thing. I'm dying. And thank you very much. I tell often that story of uh, a meditation teacher. I never say her name. I think I know who it is, but it doesn't matter because I'd like to think it could be anybody who, uh, uh, a Westerner, a person in this country, who died. And they said that her dying words were, thank you very much. I have no complaints. I thought to myself, wow, you know? I actually would like to have that for my sentence, but I'd like to have that for my way of life. Thank you very much. I have no complaints. Not because I have convinced myself that I should be Pollyanna. There are a lot of things that annoy me, but <laughs> and that annoy everybody. There are a lot of things that annoy everybody, but complaining is not necessarily a helpful thing to do about it. To say it's a very hot day today, you know, it's a, yesterday was a very hot day. <coughs> today is going to be a very hot day. But the, you know, and I had a moment when somebody said, "My daughter is teaching kindergarten, and all those babies are going to be so hot." Didn't you really feel awe for them, you know? And for this poor teacher who's starting this day, I was thinking, I wonder if they have a sprinkler in the school playground. I wonder if they can run in the sprinkler or something. And, we, and, the thing, and that, that's the moment where I think, ah, I think that our minds have, our attention has the potential of being lifted out of our own story into somebody else's story not forgetting our story, but really recognizing in somebody else's story the struggle and the concern and the compassion so that it doesn't, it doesn't end up a self-centered absorption in my trouble and my life and my stuff, but everybody's trouble in their life and everybody's interest in responding to it. It's amazing to me to be part of a species of people that cares about each other, even we don't know each other. I think the, 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 that, that's what I meant when I said that part where we share. I don't know whose mother or whose sister or whose brother-in-law, but somebody's. And, and they have problems that are not the problems in my family at this point. But I have and you have. Everybody's got stuff. If we were all, if we all had to say something that we're thinking about, we've all got stuff. Everybody's got something. And sometimes when I hear all that sharing, I think of things I haven't thought of having that people have. I think, wow, people are so courageous. They've got this and that and the other, and they keep on going and taking care of each other. And it's so uplifting. And I think we keep on going because other people care about us and take care of us and fix the blankets especially if we can notice. I was, I was thinking to myself, I, 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 yeah, I remember saying to you earlier, I've been writing uh, in really, really hard this last 10 days. It's been an interesting experience. It's been like being on a me meditation retreat. Some of you know that I, uh, I wrote an electronic course for, uh, for a company that produces internet courses in the spring, and I love doing it because they can, uh, they send it out all over the world and there were people subscribed to the course in, in, in Ireland and in northern uh, Norway and in New South Wales 
and uh, people who can't leave their homes because they're, they're, they're either remote or they're sick. And I love the idea that uh, uh, very economically, all of these people could have access to what, what an explanation of loving kindness. <clears throat> so I'm doing another course this fall, and it, it's going to start at the end of September. And uh, it's going to start at the end of September, but it was supposed to start at the end of October. And it just got moved up uh, a month. And I hadn't, uh, improvidently, I hadn't been writing it all summer. So I am writing it day and night the last week. And it's been like a meditation retreat because I'm, I'm really... And there's been something really exciting for me in doing it because I think that I have been so intense about doing it, it's like a meditation retreat, that I've been teaching myself all kinds of things that I didn't get so well until this last week. And, oh, look what I just wrote. That's really very good. I like that. <laughs> no, and seriously, it's not just to like show off, but to make the point about when you really, really concentrate, you have whole new insights. So I am teaching, I'm teaching things. I am teaching the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and the Seven Factors but in a way that's different from how I've usually done it, because it's appearing to me different. I'm talking, yeah, Regina. Um, when you have time, could you remind us of the Eightfold Path? I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to do that right now. Uh, no, I don't have to read it to you. I know it. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun for me to read it to you, but I don't know where it is, so I can't do it. Uh, I'll tell it to you. This is a, uh, this is going to take me three minutes. Well, five, five. Let's see if I can do it. Uh, because this is the way I'd like to do it. Once upon a time, there was a man named Siddhartha Gautama who, like us, had an experience in his life where he suddenly realized, whoa, this is a very, the thing about this life is that once you're in it, there's no way out but forward, and that it's liable to all kinds of disappointments. That we all realize that. And sometimes, sometimes early on, sometimes people uh, early on when, when a parent dies, or maybe their family breaks up, or they have some tragic accident, or a young friend dies, often people do not have what we think of as an existential awakening moment until somewhere at the end of their adolescence and early adulthood, something happens and we realize, uh-oh, there's going to be, throughout the rest of my life, doesn't have to happen as, as a direct se uh, sequel to something devastating happen, happening to you, but maybe something devastating happens to somebody else. But something happens and you realize, uh-oh, I am in for a lifetime of having to adjust to things that I wasn't prepared for. I love telling the twin stories of my friend who was in her 90s who said, come and teach in my nursing home that I just moved into an assistant live assisted living because I'm having trouble getting used to it. And I, I, that's, I, that's as much of that story I need to tell you now because that story always goes along with the story of my, uh, uh, my youngest grandchild on the way to kindergarten said, telling her mother, I'm very worried. I said, what are you worried about? I'm worried that I, when I get there, I will not know where to put my lunch pail. And I won't know where to hang my sweater. 
and I won't know what work I'm supposed to do. And this is after going to preschool for two years. Right? You know, it's a new place. Where do you put your lunch pail? Where do you hang your sweater? The, and my sense between those two stories is we have a whole life of I don't know what to do next, you know? I don't know what to do next. Suddenly I've fallen in love, suddenly I've fallen out of love, suddenly the person who was in love with me isn't in love with me. Suddenly this doesn't work, suddenly that doesn't work, suddenly my job fell through, suddenly this happened. Someone said that the formula for every novel is once upon a time, suddenly, <laughs> miraculously or fortunately, they lived happily ever after. <laughs> That's the story of every, of every story because you don't want to hear a story other than that. You don't want to hear a, another end. Actually, screenwriters rewrite the ends of novels. They, they rewrite the ends of, of uh, soap operas because the people write in, no, 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 we don't like the way this is going. So, because we want to have like suddenly, miraculously, and the happily ever after. But that's what happens. I think we notice our lives because change happens. Like every moment is not different from the one before. They say, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. One of the things, I'm coming to the Eightfold Path. I'm watching. <laughs> it may take me more than five minutes to get there. But one of the things that I thought about yesterday was I'm going to write the Ninefold Path because I may not have to, but I thought yesterday about writing... Uh, a wise gratitude as the ninth of the ninefold path. I'll tell you in a minute why I think I don't have to do it. But I'll tell you why it came up. I was thinking about, um, first of all, I was thinking about complaining about it. it was a hot day, everybody was complaining, in, including my own mind. <clears throat> and I caught my own mind complaining about something as I was driving in the car to come here yesterday afternoon, not to be here for something driving and it's hot in the car and I, I catch my mind and I realize that there's a particular uh, meditation instruction from Thich Nhat Hanh that I am devoted to. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Vietnamese meditation teacher of great renown and wonderful talent who said if I'm walking along and either my mind is in a disgruntled shape or even if it's there's nothing to think about because everything seems quite neutral. My mind is like, mm, neutral. I could think to myself, no toothache. <laughs> That's a mindfulness moment. <laughs> yeah, no toothache. And I, told, I, I said that to Jack when I arrived last night. We, were, we had a little meeting. And he said, That's great. He said, You could also say, no cancer, no earthquake. Uh, what? No flood? Uh, whatever. But we tend not to. We tend to say, okay, this is all right, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay. Ah, this is not okay. Uh, <laughs> I, this flew, just flew into my mind. It caused me to laugh. Maybe it's the wrong thing to say. But there, were, uh, there was a, a, a joke. Maybe it's not a problem. I don't know. Anyway, it came in my mind just now of a child that did not say a word until he was five years old. And his parents and his family, of course, worried. He seemed healthy in every other way. And then one night at dinner, he said, these beans are not cooked enough. <laughs> and you can imagine his family all, you know, 
fell to their knees, praise God, it's a miracle. And they recovered from their surprise. They said, why didn't you talk before? And he said, until now, everything was okay. So, so it is a good joke, see? But our minds tend to do that. They say, that's okay, that's okay, this is fine, that's going all right, that's going all right. Ah, very hot, Rrr, so hot, look at this hot. But no toothache, no cancer, no flood, no epidemic, clean water. Uh, there are like a thousand things that we can do, dedicate, you know, we can put our attention to. Now we're going to come to the Eightfold Path, nearing it. <laughs> Siddhartha Gautama. 2,500 years ago, left his family. The, there's a story about it, and I think it's an apocryphal story. I, I don't take it literally to be so true, but I think it's a story of all of us. The story is that his family prevented him from seeing the truth of old age, sickness, and death. You really can't do that. It has to be a, some sort of a myth, because by the time the story starts, he's 26 years old, he's married, and he has a child. So there's been some travail, and some older, and his parents have gotten older, and some people have died, but it's a myth. So I think it means up to, his, up to that point, he hadn't really realized, uh-oh, this, this is a complicated life thing, life. You take a risk getting attached. Maybe it has to do with the fact that he had a wife, and he had a child at that point. Maybe that propelled him to think, uh-oh. Somebody in this class who uh, came all through her pregnancy and then came back a while later with, uh, with a baby for us to bless said, you know, I didn't know when I, when I was pregnant. I was very, very excited about it. And of course, when the baby was born, everybody said, congratulations, this is great. I thought also, this is great, this is wonderful. And it is great, and it is wonderful. And I am very happy about it. And I had no idea that I had mortgaged my heart for the whole rest of my life, because now it's tied up in the well-being of this individual. But you don't think about that in advance. And you want it anyway. You're, you're prepared to take out that mortgage for the, for the possible rewards of being in a relationship of love. In the story of the Buddha, he responded to that awareness that we will be, uh, we will lose everything that we love unless it loses us first. Uh, but in our own body, we lose our wellness, we lose our vigor, we lose our youth. We lose a lot of hopes and dreams. Uh, we can't, at, at 80, decide we're going to take up the trumpet and, or do other things. We, we, there, we pass through uh, uh, periods of time after which we can't do something, can't have a baby after this age, you can't run a marathon after this age that all those can't-dos, we mostly take in our stride. We make jokes about it. I don't think those jokes are so funny, actually. There are all those, all the, there are, if I look in the card section in the, in the stores, all the birthday cards that you can send to um, people of a certain age, they're not so funny. Joe agrees. They're not that funny. I wouldn't send that to anybody. I would say, happy birthday. You made it. That's great. Uh, never mind any of those. Anyway, and we do it mostly. But when, if I think about not only do we mostly do it, but there's a lot of heartbreak in the doing. 
Tamara was very sad to leave everything that she loved, and her friends loved her. So it's not that all easy, even if you do it nobly and beautifully. There's heartache, there's getting used to it, there's getting over it. I think to myself, we are accommodating all of our lives, okay? It isn't what it used to be, it isn't what it used to be, it isn't what it used to be. And what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha thought about, and why he said, I'm leaving home, is he said, this, this is what's true. And people's minds um, are fraught with suffering of realizing things change and they can't be what I want them to be. He said, actually, it doesn't only have to do with death and dying. Every time things don't work out, the mind, look how, I, uh, look how the, mind, the hands clench all the time. You know how I can teach something on a on an e-course without people looking. <laughs> I said that actually in the course. I said if you could see me, I'm all the time saying the mind ties itself in a knot or it opens. And what we want is a mind that opens and says, Okay, it's like this. What can you do? You know, all the things that everybody's great grandfather or grandfather said, the maxims about that's life, things happen. Uh, you, can, you shouldn't cry over spilt milk. What can you do? It's out of your hands. Everybody knows that. But nevertheless, however much we know that, the mind says, no, it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. And it's the mind railing against its circumstance, which is really the mind in a moment of non-wisdom. It's a moment of what the Buddha would have called ignorance. It's a moment of forgetting that things are the way they are for multitudinous reasons. And only one, one part of how my life is, teeny part, has to do with the actions that I take. I take good care of my, I brush my teeth, I take my vitamins, I do this, I do that. So did Tamara. And so does everybody else mostly. But nevertheless, things happen. And they're not in our, we're not in charge. And to be able to say this is the way life is, what can you do? The only thing you can do is be kind. I think that's the only thing, to ourselves and to other people, because everybody is doing it. And for me to know that everybody's doing it, my mind has to be settled enough so it's not so tied up in my own experience, so I can look around. There is no circumstance where I couldn't look around here when we listen to each other sharing. Uh, when, I go on a, when I go on an airliner, I don't ask people, what are you praying for as I'm walking up and down the aisles? You know? But I look at them and I think to myself, everybody has a world. You know, if I could see into their mind, everybody here has a whole story. It's got a cast of characters, it's got a plot. I don't know whether they're flying on their way to a graduation or a wedding or a funeral or an 80th birthday party. Everybody's got something that they're going to do. Nobody got on the plane by accident. They're all going to do something. And you don't know what it is. But whatever it is, they're, they're involved in it emotionally. And so we all, it's like we accidentally find this human body that's involved, in, involved and engaged with emotions. And what the Buddha said at, in his life is, I need to find the end of suffering. And the, uh, when I started my practice, he went off, he meditated. He meditated with great meditation teachers who taught him really very intense concentration techniques. And he began to be able to control 
control his body heat, control his needs, sit still in the sun for hours. But he said, you know, I have very steady concentration, but I don't know what's the end of suffering. And he went off on his own in a very uh, significant um, apocal story. He sat down to meditate under a certain tree in Bodh Gaya and said, I won't get up until I understand. And in that night, he became aware of what we have come to call the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Four Noble Truths are life is just change. There's nothing but change. Everything is changing. We look at things like mountains and we say, well, that's not changing. It is, very, very slowly. We look at ourselves and from day to day, we say, no, nah, I'm not changing until we see one gray hair or whatever. But actually the change has been happening all along. It's always changing. Every minute our body is regenerating ourselves. And our experience is changing. And every minute we're called, not every minute, but uh, continually when our experience changes, we're called upon to make an adjustment. And mostly we make adjustments just because that's how mature people live. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I came down from uh, from up north this morning. I started early. I thought I'd be here really early to get certain tasks done that I thought. There was a lot of traffic. The minds are, look at the traffic. I say, wait a minute, there's traffic. You don't know where these people are going. We turn on KDFC. We listen to the morning Mozart. We get it. So you adjust. It's not a big deal. If you get a diagnosis that you're going to die, it is a big deal to adjust. If the person you're in love with leaves you, it's a big deal. If you lose your job, it's a big deal. If you get diagnosed with um, something that sounds terrible or worrisome, it's a deal. Um, I was very glad that the person who talked about the woman who has gestational diabetes ended by saying she's going to be all right. She will. You know, she will. Uh, that's, uh, we live in a time when people can uh, know that early and that's brilliant and it's easy to work with and it goes away afterwards, so that's, but everything is adjusting. And so the, it, what he said is life is always changing so you can't really get a firm footing. And the cause of suffering, which is the second noble truth, cause of suffering is imperative in the mind that things be different. I shouldn't have this diagnosis of whatever it is. He shouldn't have fallen out of love with me. It shouldn't be so hot. Uh, I should have changed my mortgage rates when I could have done it. Whatever it is, if it, you know, it's what it is. Either we did it or we didn't do it, but here we are. And what the Buddha said, the cause of suffering, not the cause of actually, suffering is imperative in the mind that things be different. It's the mind's inability to say, okay, that's how things are. It's a very important thing to say at this moment. Is It's not about saying, okay, I take whatever life hands out to me and it just can happen. It's not a passive response to life. We do everything that we can do. The, um, the serenity prayer <coughs> about um, the courage to change what I can change and the ability to accept what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference, is fundamentally the same thing that the Buddha taught. 
in a modern language. Reinhold Niebuhr is the theologian, Christian theologian, who wrote that prayer. <coughs> Millions of people say it every day in 12-step groups. The ability to accept what we cannot change. The third noble truth is the noble truth of the possibility of peace. That's like the best thing. Like, uh, uh, I think about, we should be shouting that one out. Peace is possible. We can do it in this very life, in this very body, with our very story. It's possible for the mind to relax. It's possible for tomorrow to say, I'm really glad I meditated. Uh, actually, I want to add to that, that in the final days of her life, before she was in the hospice, she would say, sometimes, um, sometimes I'm so distraught that uh, I feel like my mind is, you know, can't take it anymore. She said, then I go in the next room and I meditate a little bit. And then my mind calms itself down, and I come back and join my partner in the living room, and uh, we watch the Marlins game on TV. <laughs> and I really enjoy, I, I really take that as like a piece of excellent dharma. You, know, you, watch, the, you watch a baseball game while you're waiting for the end, you know? Because what else are you going to do? I came to visit a friend of mine in San Anselmo some years ago who was in her final days of life. She's lying in bed reading the Chronicle. I said, what are you doing, you know, reading the Chronicle? She said, I did everything. I closed my law practice. I, fin I got all my clients with new people. I made amends with all the people I had problems with. I've taken care of everything. My will is taken care of. My children are well into living with their father and his new partner. I said, I did everything. I'm finished. Now I have nothing to do. I'm just reading the paper. <laughs> uh, I, it was like a brilliant thing. You know, at least listen to Mozart. Don't read the crap. But anyway, I can't decide what everybody else is going to do. But peace is possible and under any kind of a circumstance. The fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. And it's eight ways of training the mind so that you will be able to experience that peace that is possible. The eight ways have... Two of them have to do with really understanding. Just as when we talked here this morning, and I said, this is what the Buddha understood. And as I said it to you, you laughed and you nodded and you laughed and you nodded, so I know you got it. One of them is really thinking about those things. The second is really uh, making an aspiration to have that kind of a mind in your own life and to practice for it. The next three parts of the path are wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. They're the ways that we behave in the world. It's always interesting to think, why did they stick right, why did he stick right speech in there? Because it is an action. It should be part of wise action. I think it's because we talk so much <laughs> and because we could so easily wound people terribly by what we say that it's worth its own part. But really, I think inherent in those three practices, there's two things to say about it. First of all, obviously, is to do all those things in a way that has in mind other people and the impact of your actions on other people, both because it's a nice thing to do for other people and also because it comes out of a deep understanding that we are all suffering. We are all managing as best we can in what is essentially an ongoing task from birth until the end. It doesn't mean that the whole life is horrible. It means that it's an incredible gift. 
but everybody has these substantial ongoing challenges. And so I think that the more that one's mind recognizes that, the more one is committed to not making it any more difficult for anybody. Let me not make it, make their burden more difficult. The last three are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Wise mindfulness and wise concentration, I talked about a little bit before. Concentration is the steadiness. Mindfulness is alertness. And the, the notion that you often hear when you go to a retreat or when you hear it here is that it's mindfulness and really deep understanding of the truth of the Four Noble Truths, that really it's like that. Not because you heard about it, but because in your own mind, you feel the mind, the mind tense up, and then it says, well, I can't do anything about it. And you say, you know, it's true, that the mind with imperative suffers, and the mind without imperative is free. From the least thing, like, all right, it's hot, to, all right, you know, I have this disease, I'm dying. Not to say I like it, it's just what's true. I don't have to compound the pain that I have about what I have with pain of imperative. The imperative is what is the suffering. Not the thing, it's the imperative. The last, which is good because I have two minutes left to go, the last is, is wise effort. And I am convinced that wise effort is the unsung hero of the whole Eightfold Path. It doesn't mean making a big effort. It means noticing the mind at every moment that you can notice and noticing the presence or absence. Noticing two things, four things. There are four noticings. Notice in the mind the presence of salubrious mind states, kindness, lovingness, peacefulness, uh, equanimity, uh, gratitude, uh, generosity. Notice any of those the presence of any of those in the mind, delight in that and consolidate that. Say, great, look what's in my mind. Let me just practice that. Notice the absence in the mind of salubrious, wholesome qualities and build them in. Um, I'm not going to get to read uh, uh, Sheila's uh, psalm to you today because I see we're running out of time. I'll do it next week. But to meet experience, to meet the day with a mind that says, listen, I'm grateful for this day. Most people, many people I know, wake up in the morning and say, great, I woke up again. It could have been otherwise, you know. That the liturgy that I know best, Mama, the, the Jewish religious liturgy, has a prayer for when you open your eyes. You say, whoa, thank God, I'm up again. It could have been otherwise. And then it's got a whole bunch of thank yous right after it. I stood up on my own feet, I put on my clothes, I can balance myself, I can open my eyes and see. On any day, we could get up and say, wow, I got up again. My friend Carol said she, once, she had a partner for a long time who uh, used to get up in the morning and say, wow, this is the best day ever. And it annoyed her because she thought to herself, how does he know it's the best day ever? He just woke up. You know? But when you think about it, it's not such a bad thing to get up in the morning and say, wow, this is the best day. I mean, why not? I mean, it could turn out to be a terrible day, but if you start out saying, oh, fantastic, I have another whole day to do something. What's the worst, you know, to incline the mind in the direction? The two other noticings are notice the presence in the mind of unwholesome thoughts. Shouldn't be this hot. 
shouldn't be this crowded on the freeway. Everybody should carpool. What's the matter with people? Uh, why should why are we mining coal and then people get stuck in those mines and they? We should be having a bit mess up the environment. Why are the legislators fine? Why we could really do sun stuff? Why are we doing? Why isn't it this? Why isn't that? Why isn't it this? Why isn't that? Notice the presence in the mind of aversive thoughts and put them out is what the Buddha said. Just put them out. You can't actually put them out. What you can do is put in other stuff and pay attention to it. And then this stuff gets pushed out. Because you're not, actually it's not in or out of the mind because the mind is not like a balloon. I mean, it's really, it's really endless. It's not like you fill it up. But, uh, but it's nice to think about it that way. But it's, the mind is endless. But if you don't pay attention to things, I mean, after, there, obviously there are a lot of things you have to pay attention to, the speed limit and all that. If you don't pay attention to the grumbly mind and if you don't give it a lot of energy, it goes away. You just don't have to do that. Notice the presence in the mind of those grumbly states and don't pay attention to them. Put them out. Notice the absence in the mind of those grumbly states. Celebrate that. Yay, no grumbly states. And keep them out. Those are the four noticings. And I actually think you could do the whole practice on the four noticings. You know, that would, wouldn't that cover it? We'd cover it in the speech, cover it in the action, cover it in everything else. Notice this, keep it in, notice those, keep it out. It's also tremendously inspiring to think that here's the Buddha saying you could just do it. Just do it. It's like the Nike ad. It says just do it. As if you could. Uh, and I think that that's really the, the juncture with you hear the instructions, just do it, then you say, whoops, I forgot to do it. And that what we do is we take on a spiritual practice of continually paying attention so that we'll remember to do it. I think I ended with, I was going to put the, I, was, I don't know if I have to put gratitude-wise, gratitude is the last, because I think that it really is the same as the wise effort. Yay, this is the best day ever. And I made it another day, and here I am again. Um, maybe we talk a little bit more about gratitude and generosity next week. But the link, I think, between the wise mind and gratitude and generosity and the wise mind about the level of suffering in the world and the compassion that it generates are really the focal points, the wings, as it were, of Buddha's practice. Um, it says the, the Dharma flies on two wings, the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. So we'll sit for one minute. May we all be inspired to continue to think about the wise efforts 
to continue to dedicate ourselves to the cultivation of mind and heart that can, can sustain our own lives and the lives of our families, our friends, our community, and the life of the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.